Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Further conflict, Israel warns of more airstrikes as it targets Hamas leaders. China clobbers cryptos, tough new rules from Beijing, Bitcoin falls below $40,000. Games guarantee the Olympics boss insists Tokyo will be safe. And wondering about Warhol, Christie's CEO discusses their latest foray into NFT art. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Again, and we begin this morning with the continuing unrest in the Middle East. Hopes of an imminent ceasefire between Israel and Gaza militants fading as the Israeli army says it's preparing for more days of conflict. The Israeli military says that overnight it targeted Hamas commanders and infrastructure. Four civilians were killed in the airstrikes, according to the official Palestinian news agency. Cross-border rocket attacks from Gaza resumed Wednesday after a day of Palestinian protests across the West Bank and elsewhere. Haddas Gold joins us now. Haddas, the strategic priorities, I think, of the, of the Israeli forces becoming ever clearer, and that means no end in sight. Well, we're definitely getting the indication, Julia, that they plan for another few days of action. They are uh, giving the impression that they don't quite feel the intense pressure from the international community and especially from the Americans to stop their military campaign. We're also uh, learning some important new developments today, including that the Israeli military tried twice to target and kill the, Ham- the leader of the Hamas military wing, uh, Mohammed Def. He has uh, been on the list of Israel's most wanted for uh, more than 20 years. He's been, uh, he say, they say he's responsible for several, for planning and executed several terrorist attacks within Israel. He's on the U.S. designated list of terrorists and has been there since 2015. But despite them targeting him twice since this conflict began, he has managed to escape. But this is part of Israel's objective in this military campaign is try to degrade Hamas's, not only their uh, actual capabilities by targeting rocket launchers, by targeting their tunnel system, but also trying to hit Hamas commanders. And if they were to get somebody like Mohammed Def, that would be uh, for Israel a big objective in part of this conflict. But we are seeing from them uh, indications that they plan to continue for a few more days. We obviously don't know how much longer that will be. And the airstrikes continue. And as well, the rockets are continuing to fly from Gaza into Israel today. I mean, just already this morning, there have been several sirens, red alert sirens going off in the south. Our colleagues who are down there have witnessed some more rocket interceptions by the Iron Dome missile system. And uh, another important element that we are learning today is we are getting the explanation from the Israelis on why they targeted that building in Gaza that housed the Associated Press and Al Jazeera offices. It's got a lot of attention over the past few days when the Israeli military uh, orders uh, warned everybody in that building to evacuate because they were going to destroy it. The Israelis had said that Hamas was using that building but had not divulged what they thought the Hamas was using it for. Americans uh, saying they received that intelligence. And now the Israeli and Israel, a senior IDF officer telling CNN uh, that the Hamas military wing was using that building for research and development of high-end capabilities for the most sensitive of attacks against Israel. Now, we know that the Israelis have shared that intel with the Americans. Uh, we don't know exactly how the Americans interpreted that, whether they accepted that explanation. But of course, that has been a big... Uh, has received a lot of attention over the past few days about why the Israelis targeted that building. So important development there on their explanation. 
Of course, the death and destruction and the civilians caught in this crossfire continues. Uh, according uh, to the Palestinian ministry, to the Hamas-run Palestinian Ministry of Health in Gaza, more than 200 people have been killed, including more than 60 children. We're getting reports of more civilian deaths also uh, today, including a, uh, a radio journalist in Israel yesterday. Two more civilians were killed when they, the agricultural packing facility they were working at was hit by mortar fire. Just goes to show you that although there are plenty of diplomatic efforts going on underway behind the scenes to try to reach some sort of calm in the situation, it is still very much active and it is still, unfortunately, very much violent. Julia. Yes, and lives are being lost. Hadis Gold, thank you so much for that. Stay safe. And as always, we will update you on the latest to Middle East developments throughout the day here on CNN. So stay with us for that. And for now, we'll bring it back to business. And it's what I would call a risk-off day. Most asset classes losing ground, including the crypto space, which we'll get to in just a moment. But you can see it there, a sea of red. U.S. futures heading for a third losing session. Tech and some of those recovery play stocks also weighing on the broader markets here pre-market. We also finished at session lows in Tuesday's market session in the United States with financials and the energy sector falling by well over 1%. It's again inflationary fears, whether in terms of products or for wages that still dominate. And on that note, in fact, Bank of America announcing Tuesday that it will raise its minimum wage to $25 an hour by 2025. You know, the announcement's coming ahead of a Senate hearing next week on big bank oversight that will include testimony from all the major U.S. financial heads, including Bank of America's Brian Murnahan. Coincidence? There are no coincidences. I said it. China, also a key sentiment driver overnight. New site Politico says the EU Parliament is set to freeze a key investment agreement with China. That was seven years in the making, I believe. But China also triggering a further crypto crunch. Call it Beijing versus Bitcoin and some of the others, the largest cryptocurrency falling more than 20 percent. As you can see, it's actually more than 23 percent right now to its lowest level since February. After China banned financial firms from offering crypto services to clients, Beijing also warned on speculative investment in the crypto space. Just to give you some context here, Bitcoin now down around 40 percent from all time highs it hit just one month ago. It's still up. 27% year to date. That context important. Let's get more on all of this in the drivers because Claire Sebastian joins me now. Claire, let's talk about the curbs first. It comes as China targets the operations of its tech giants, particularly those operating in the payment space. Let's be clear. And of course, they continue on the road to test their own central bank digital currency, the CBDC, as it's known, uh, which also feels key. Yeah, all important context, Julia. And it's important to note, given the the reaction that we've seen in the market, that that this isn't sort of a huge move in the broader context. China has been cracking down uh, on virtual currencies for many years. This is in many ways incremental, but I think the reaction shows just how sensitive and how volatile this market continues to be. This was three Chinese financial watchdogs that are supervised by the People's Bank of China and the China Insurance and Banking Commission. And they have said, uh, as you noted, that financial institutions and payment companies shouldn't participate in any transactions related to crypto or provide crypto-related services. In that uh, joint statement, they also warned about sort of rising speculation in this market, saying prices of cryptocurrency have skyrocketed and plummeted recently. I think we we just noted that. Uh, And speculative trading has bounced back. They warned this seriously harms the safety of people's property and disturbs normal economic and financial orders. So this sort of didn't immediately take off in terms of the market reaction. And then overnight, suddenly, uh, we saw these huge moves. It should be noted as well. 
that it's not just Bitcoin, other cryptocurrencies are also falling, some of them, in fact, more than Bitcoin. So this uh, has sent serious waves through this market. But but I should as well note that this is, you know, incremental in the broader context of what China is doing. Yeah, incremental in China terms, but also incremental to the broader volatility that we've been watching in crypto for the last several weeks as well. I was trying to look for some kind of connection. And I guess the one that I could make between the broader crypto space and what China's doing is mining in China and whether or not the Chinese say, hey, we're going to put some limits on mining in China, because that would have, I think, a broader shakedown effect in the crypto market. But to my bigger point here, there's more than just what China's done in the last 24 hours on an ongoing basis going on in the crypto market. It's noisy. It's very noisy. You know, it's, it, this is a market that has been hanging on Elon Musk's every tweet uh, for the past few weeks. So that some of the big falls that we saw earlier this month were because of uh, his sort of flip-flop announcement that Tesla was going to suspend uh, purchases of cars in Bitcoin while he waits to see uh, if, if mining can become more sustainable on an energy front. Then earlier this week, we saw more falls after he, said, he sort of suggested that Bitcoin was selling off, so that Tesla was selling off some of its Bitcoin. He later clarified that. He also sent Dogecoin down quite quite sharply after his uh, jokes about it on SNL. So this is an extremely volatile market. But one thing I want to point out to you, Bank of America released its fund managers survey this week. They said that 43% of the fund managers survey say long Bitcoin is the most crowded trade out there. 75% of them say that that, that, that it's a bubble. And and they do note that that, that calling something a crowded trade is often associated with a peak in the market. So you could read into that, that there's a sort of a shift in mood from the institutional investors uh, around Bitcoin. But on the other hand, Others will point out to you that we have seen 40% drops uh, in Bitcoin before. This is characteristically a very volatile uh, asset, uh, and, and many believe that it will bounce back. Michael Saylor of MicroStrategy added another 10, 10 million to, uh, to his portfolio this week. Yeah, and didn't his share price go down as a result? But your point there is vital. We've seen volatility like this before, and a lot in the crypto space are saying, look, we've been here before. And we ultimately end up um, we end up rising. I'll match you, though, with JP Morgan saying that they're seeing institutional clients that are probably looking at this volatility and going wowzers, um, pushing back into the gold investment space, which um, quite frankly doesn't surprise me either. This is going to be a long road. Claire Sebastian, thank you. And that's nothing to do with Tesla. Uh, Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. OK, let's move on. The Tokyo Olympics will be held in a safe way. That's what the head of the International Olympic Committee said today as public opposition to the Summer Games grows amid a surge in COVID-19 cases in Japan. Selena Wang joins us live from Tokyo. Selena, we are going to continue to talk about this one as well, I think, for the coming weeks. But what did catch my eye was the proportion of people that are going to be present in the Olympic Village that will have been vaccinated. And that statistic for me was key. Doesn't include those that go to watch the Olympic Games, but it is important for those that are competing. Right, Julia, that is an important note that even though vaccines are not mandatory, the president of the IOC said that he expects more than 80 percent of the people of the Olympic Village to be vaccinated. And the IOC has been reiterating this point that given the success of test events for the Olympics, they believe that these games can be held safely with the current COVID restrictions that they will have in place, which includes regular testing, contact tracing, as well as a contact tracing app that everybody has to download. In addition to that, however, 
these athletes are not going to have to quarantine for 14 days. So there are hefty restrictions in place, but they are not reassuring the broader public, the medical community. You have several groups of doctors, including one association that represents more than 6,000 doctors in Tokyo, and they are urging the government to cancel these games. They say that with these restrictions in place, even without any spectators, there is still a risk that these games could turn into a super spreader event, one that not only spreads more contagious variants throughout Japan, but around the world. You have a situation. It's not just a small scale test event. You're going to have more than 11,000 athletes from more than 200 countries, plus staff, as well as tens of thousands of volunteers who are most likely going to be unvaccinated. Not to mention the fact that Japan at this point has still vaccinated fully vaccinated less than 2% of its population. The country is struggling to deal with a fourth wave of COVID cases. And in many large cities, the medical system experts say is at the brink of collapse. Julia? Yeah, it's uh, very, very worrying. It almost looks like the only thing that they can cope with here is the athletes themselves and none of the usual additions to the Olympics. Selena, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. Selena Wang, there. All right, there is uh, some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Taiwan tightening COVID-19 restrictions today to try and curb a spike in new cases. The new rules mean some non-essential businesses must close and there are limits on how many people can gather together. Meanwhile, Taiwan's presidential office has accused Beijing of blocking access to coronavirus vaccines. CNN's Will Ripley joins us now from Taipei. Will, we've focused on Taiwan a lot on this show and the early success that they had. What happened in terms of quarantines, contact tracing, uh, testing? Did they just get complacent? I think complacency is certainly one factor here, Julia. Politics, another. Taiwan, as you well know, is a wealthy island that is one of the world's leading manufacturers for semiconductors. They have plenty of cash, but they have had a very difficult time obtaining vaccines. They placed an order for 5 million AstraZeneca doses, and up until today, they only had 300,000. They got another 400,000 this afternoon but still under a million have actually arrived in country. They were negotiating with BioNTech, trying to order uh, millions of doses from them, and the deal fell apart. And Taiwan's leaders didn't feel the pressure that they're feeling now to get doses into the country because for so many months after their very decisive action at the beginning of the pandemic to shut down their borders, they had eliminated uh, local transmission. But now that they're dealing with their most severe outbreak since the start of the pandemic, they are renewing their diplomatic efforts to try to speed up the arrival of vaccines, and they are calling out mainland China. As you know, a very complicated relationship between this self-governing island of 23 million people and the mainland, which considers it a renegade province that they could take back at any time. And they've been flying military planes in the Taiwan Strait and South China Sea to prove their point on a regular basis. There is this tweet that came out from the presidential spokesperson in Taiwan saying, Taiwan access to vaccines continues to be slowed down by Chinese interference. Well, they insist we buy Chinese made ones. If you really want to help, Please don't stand in the doorway. Don't block up the hall. This comes after a back and forth between the Taiwan Affairs Office and the mainland, which put out this message offering to help Taiwan with this new epidemic. And then Taiwan's mainland affairs office firing back, saying, if your offer was actually genuine, then stop distracting us with military intimidation and let us focus on the uh, pandemic. And of course, they're also saying that they're going to try to develop their own vaccines, locally developed vaccines. And Taiwan's president, Tsai Ing-wen, says late July is the target for those to be available to the public. Listen. 
We will let Taiwan people have access to domestic-produced vaccines in the quickest way and ensure they are in the safest condition in order to protect them. This will also allow Taiwan to return back to normal as soon as possible. Meanwhile, Taiwan is expanding their level three restrictions. These are the most intensive restrictions that Taiwan has had throughout the entire pandemic. Just one step short of a lockdown that was just from this weekend here in Taipei in a new Taipei city. But now, Julie, they've expanded those restrictions nationwide. They continue to have hundreds of new cases confirmed every single day. They're nearing the 1,000 mark just in the last week. And considering that throughout the whole pandemic, they just have around 2,000. They've now crossed the 2,000 mark and just 14 deaths in this country. This high of a case number is very troubling because they have no herd immunity. Because fewer than 1% of the population has been vaccinated, because people weren't really wanting to get vaccinated, there wasn't an, an urgent need they felt to get vaccinated, but now you have a population highly susceptible if this outbreak were to really spread. So they're really hunkering down here and hoping that they can get more vaccine doses in arms as soon as possible. Yeah, a fraction of the numbers that we've seen elsewhere, but to your broader point, circuit breakers and uh, Key restrictions worked in the past, and they're going to try it yeah. again. Well, Ripley in Taipei there, Taiwan. Thank you for that. All right, so to come here on First Move, once you pop, you just can't stop how Christie's is continuing the NFT trend with the help of Andy Warhol. And vaccinated visitors welcome Europe, reopening its borders to travellers. Welcome back to First Move, a soft picture for U.S. majors pre-market with Bitcoin blues helping contribute to today's negative sentiment. Another check of Bitcoin plunging by some, what, 22 percent right now. I'm going to check the screen when it comes. Yes, it hasn't moved too much more. And testing 30,000 levels once again after new moves by China to rein in the broader crypto space. Tesla shares falling more than 5% pre-market amid continued uncertainty over how much Bitcoin the company still has on its balance sheet, perhaps. MicroStrategy, which announced just yesterday that it's added another $10 million to its Bitcoin holdings, is on track to fall more than 15%. Michael Saylor, the CEO of cloud software firm, says in a tweet yesterday that MicroStrategy now holds more than 92,000 Bitcoin acquired for an average price of $24,450. Okay, let's take a closer look at China's crypto crackdown. Three of the nation's regulatory agencies have banned banks and online payment firms from offering any services related to cryptocurrencies. In a statement, they said speculative trading in cryptocurrencies, quote, harms the safety of people's property and disturbs normal economic and financial orders. Joining us now is Scott Galloway, professor of marketing at NYU Stern School of Business. He's also the author of Post Corona from Crisis to Opportunity. Scott, great to have you with us. That's an interesting quote. It disturbs normal economic and financial orders. Some might say that's happening in the West, too. And others might say that's the whole point. What do you make of what's going on? Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. We now have two entities uh, competing for who has the most influence or more influence over the markets, and that is the second largest economy in the world and the regulators, or Elon Musk, who is literally making and destroying small fortunes, uh, 280 characters at a time. I wonder if this goads the SEC or nudges the SEC into actually clarifying their viewpoint on what feels like if you don't call it market manipulation, market shaping influence from individuals, specifically, specifically Elon. But this is, um, I mean, it's still up for the year, 
but there's no doubt about it. This is going to draw additional scrutiny. Everybody, nobody minds market manipulation as long as the manipulator is manipulating the the price of the under asset, underlying asset in your favor. Uh, that is no longer happening. It's going up and it's going down. But it's going to get interesting here, Julia. That's all I can say from our regulators. The danger is it's manipulating it in his favor. I mean, to your point, if you can you have an asset class where one tweet or even one word in the case of Indeed uh, over the weekend with Elon Musk can send a market or an asset like a Bitcoin or a Dogecoin up 20% one day, down 10% another. I mean, it's a sort of manipulator's dream. It's a regulator's nightmare. Yeah. So imagine uh, Matt Levine from Bloomberg had a great analogy. And that is, imagine you found a, a bottle and you rub the bottle and a genie comes out of it. And you could say to the genie, all right, I can buy an asset and then I can take that asset up 10% and sell. And then with tweets, take it down 10% and buy more. How much would someone be willing to pay for that bottle? And the wonderful thing about the markets that creates confidence for numerous people to invest in the markets is that no one individual has been able to control any sector of the market for very long. That is a key component of rational markets that create confidence for a bunch of players to come in as no one individual or company controls that market. And we are seeing that, in fact, one individual does have incredible influence over the market. And at some point, the SEC, I think it feels like Elon Musk is kind of waving, thumbing his nose in their face. And I think at some point they're going to respond. But yeah, it doesn't feel like a healthy market. How long does they take to respond, Scott? Because I think that's the point. I mean, we keep talking about the SEC, but these are not securities. And that's the point. Like, I don't think there's any regulator that knows whether it's their responsibility to react and how to react. Quite frankly, that's part of the problem here. Yeah, it is. So it's technically not a security. So there's there's some question around whether it's even under the domain of the SEC because it doesn't represent underlying ownership in a company. Or So it's technically not a security, but it is been has been classified as a type of a commodity. But when markets seem to be getting destabilized, and I think these actions over the last seven days where you see $200 billion wiped off an asset class because of a tweet is going to inspire some people to reach out to the regulatory agencies and say, you need to do something, even if it's clarifying their language on market manipulation. The SEC's language around market manipulation is purposefully vague. I wouldn't be surprised if they come out and clarify it and don't even mention Mr. Musk's name, but it'll be clear who they're talking about. Something's going to happen here, I think, in the next 30 days, Julia. Do you? Oh, and even if it's just clarification of what mar- the definition of market manipulation or something, something more aggressive. But I'll tell you, you know, what I think this, I think about second order effects, Julia, I think what this reflects is just how weak Tesla's board is. If you think about uh, Elon Musk, this is an individual potentially putting people on Mars, putting cargo into space, perhaps converting us from, con- from internal combustion engines to electric engines. This is important work that is tremendously lucrative. The automobile market is now at $800 billion market on the backs of Tesla's ascent. And the, the question I'd be asking the board is, is this really a worthwhile distraction from your good work and our responsibility as fiduciaries to look out for Tesla and SpaceX shareholders? To me, this is really, I mean, it says a lot of things, but it says how weak the corporate governance is at Tesla, who doesn't have a board member who can reach out to the CEO and say, simply put, what are you doing? So this has, this is a weakness and an example of a weakness in governance and how one individual is now more powerful, maybe even than uh, the Chinese government. It's going to be I think in the next 30, 30 days, we're going to see some sort of statement or clarification or action. Is 
Bitcoin bigger than what we're seeing here? I mean, it's a the valuations moving around. Let's call it a one trillion dollar market. Let's call the crypto space a two trillion dollar market. Is it bigger than what we're seeing at this moment? And actually, will it be helped by some clarification from the regulators or are we at risk of one individual here, particularly as far as some of the institutional interests that we've seen in recent months, perhaps walking away and saying, actually, it's not for us at this time? Well, you, you see a pattern, whether it's junk bonds or the Internet. There's sort of the Wild West, a ton of innovation. Typically, the markets get out over its skis in terms of valuation. There's a, there's a, a correction or even a collapse in time. There's some regulation, and it creates a healthier market where giants emerge. So you could see that same pattern uh, being followed here. I, again, think the underlying uh, kind of thing that's driving the, the fueling of cryptocurrencies is that at the end of the day, a younger generation in America and Europe and around the world isn't doing as well as previous generations for the first time in history in the U.S. And when they don't have the volatility or they feel that the markets are rigged, when they see their wealth go from 19 percent of the economy to 9 percent over the last 30 years, which is what ha- has happened to people under the age of 40, they're going to create their own asset classes and they're going to create their own volatility. So to a certain extent, this is, this is a generation of younger people saying, look, the current system is rigged towards you baby boomers. So we're going to create our own asset classes and we're going to create our own volatility. I think at the end of the day, the underlying driver here is income inequality and the fact that we have transferred so much wealth from younger to older people and they no longer have the same opportunities in the same markets that our generation enjoyed. And that's not going any way anytime soon. Um, you've cited in blogs two of the driving forces here as well. Trust, to your bigger point, I think, there, and also scarcity in the case of Bitcoin, the limited supply of, of, of Bitcoin out there. One of your other bold predictions was in the next two to five years, Tesla produces a coin of its own. Do you still believe that? For what purpose? And to the point about trust in light of everything that we're seeing, do you trust that coin enough for it to be a success? Well, there are a lot of coins who I would say that trust isn't a key component or credibility or trust by traditional metrics hasn't gotten in the way of them being worth 50 or 60 billion dollars. I mean, do you realize last week Dogecoin was worth more than Moderna? So I believe that Elon Musk is absolutely, absolutely setting up a, a Tesla coin or a Musk coin. Uh, and the reason why is despite how much money uh, these individuals have, I think every morning they wake up and look in the mirror and say, hey, hello, wealthiest person in the world. And quite frankly, I think Elon Musk could probably produce a coin right now and increase his wealth by 50 to 100 billion dollars, which is a pretty a pretty large incentive. Uh, Much less credible coins have uh, or less famous or coins that don't have the same sort of megaphone that Elon Musk has have achieved multi-billion dollar valuations. And what was telling is a tweet last week where he said, I would not do a coin unless Dogecoin couldn't figure out more efficient, more efficient um, a means of uh, producing coins, which I read as stay tuned, coming soon. Yeah, you put nothing past uh, Elon Musk. Um, Scott, do you own cryptocurrency? I don't own a single coin, uh, Julia, and I wish I had. Uh, call me a boomer. I, I can't wrap my arms around it. I understand Bitcoin better, I think, than 99% of the general public, and I still don't understand cryptocurrencies. I just have a difficult time wrapping my arms around this. I'm, I am going to invest in the picks and the shovels. I'm going to invest in a company called Ledger, which is cold storage wallet that owns supposedly or is storing about 10% of all crypto. I think this is a phenomenon. I don't think it's going anywhere. 
But I do think we're in the stage where we're going to see a decent amount of fallout, some regulatory intervention, which I think will make for a healthier market because there's a ton of innovation around this. But I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say, Julia, I am a no-coiner. <laughs> no-coiner. That's the technical term. I was, I was going to ask you, and I've run out of time, what kind of world we're in when Dogecoin's worth more than Moderna, which is, you know, vaccinating the world. But I don't think there's one word for it. Scott? Great to have you with us. Bonkers, perhaps, is the word. Scott Galloway, Professor of Marketing at NYU Stern School of Business, answering my own questions now. Thank you, sir. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. And I can tell you, Wall Street is a sea of red this morning. Week open across the board for the U.S. majors. As you can see, we're down more than 1% with the most pronounced losses happening at this stage in the Nasdaq, the tech-heavy sector, down some 1.5%. But we've got weakness across most asset classes, in fact, include, including, as we've discussed, a broad-based decline in cryptocurrencies as Beijing announces new measures to control the rise of alternative currencies there. Bitcoin losing almost a quarter of its value today alone, though it's paring back on some of those losses, still down near 20%. The red-hot rally in commodities pausing for breath here too, with crude, lumber and copper all pulling back this session. Gold, which is benefiting from renewed institutional investor interest at the expense of Bitcoin, according to JP Morgan, is up a little right now. We'll call that relatively unchanged but outperforming. Okay, let's bring it back to today's top story and more breaking news from Israel, where the conflict is in its 10th day. In the last few minutes, sirens have sounded in northern Israel near the Lebanese border. The Israeli military says it's preparing for hostilities to continue for days more as Hamas militants continue to fire rockets into Israel. 219 people have been killed by Israeli airstrikes in Gaza. That's according to Hamas Run, health ministry there. And Ben Wiedemann joins us live from Jerusalem. Ben, the bottom line is it looks like neither side backing down at this moment. Uh, no, well, we understand that Hamas is sending messages that it actually would like a ceasefire. But what we've heard specifically from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is that they're going to continue the operation. Having said that, Julia, there are some interesting articles in the Israeli media today uh, suggesting that the security and military leadership feel that they've essentially reached their objectives uh, within the last two days and then it's time to stop. But they need a decision from the executive, from the prime minister, uh, who they, according to these articles, uh, for one thing, is uh, very worried about these corruption charges. And another is that uh, he wants to ensure that in this current round of horse trading uh, that's following yet another Israeli election, uh, that he wants to come out on top and be able to present the Israeli public with a clear victory rather than a ceasefire in which Hamas is crippled but is not crushed. And uh, therefore, I think we're, we've sort of reached the point where militarily there's not that much more that the Israelis can achieve and there's a lot they can lose with mistakes or things that could lead to large civilian casualties, larger civilian uh, casualties. And the expectation is that within the coming days, somehow, perhaps with Egyptian mediation, with perhaps with Qatari mediation, that some halt to the hostilities will be reached. Julia? 
And it has to come from the region, Ben, perhaps rather than the United States. President Biden asked once again what he thinks of the current situation and he actually avoided answering the question. Well, yes, the, the Americans, even though they hold so many of the cards, they provide Israel with $3.8 billion annually with military aid. Uh, and they, of course, are providing constant diplomatic cover for Israel. Uh, they don't seem to be willing to play those cards, so to speak. And therefore, it is up to the Egyptians, who have a lot of experience dealing with Hamas, because, of course, Gaza shares a border uh, with Egypt, and the Qataris, who over the years have provided financial sustenance to the Gaza Strip with the approval of the Israelis, it must be uh, pointed out, and financial sustenance to Hamas as well. Perhaps they might be able to work something out, but the Americans seem like a giant with their hands tied when it comes to trying to actually make the fighting stop. They seem to be leaving it to others to actually do that essential job. Julia? Ben Meadwin, great to get your perspective, as always. Ben Meadwin there. Thank you. Your Washington Post move. More to come. Welcome back to the show and a first move exclusive from the last word in fine art. Christie's is opening the bidding on the sale of five NFTs or non-fungible tokens created from art made by Andy Warhol in the 1980s. Believe it or not, Warhol created these pictures on a paint program on a Commodore Amiga. They were discovered on floppy disks a few years ago by computer engineers working with the Andy Warhol Foundation. The CEO of Christie's, Guillaume Suruti, joins us now. Guillaume, fantastic to have you on the show. This is so much fun. And for me, Andy's at the intersection of uh, an established commercial pop artist and then the digital art world and what we're seeing there. What does this represent for Christie's and for Andy Warhol as an artist? I think it's... uh... I think it's it's the logical next step after what we have done in March, selling uh, NFT for 69 million from a crypto artist, Beepo. What we have done last week, for the first time, we are presenting in our major auction sale in New York, an NFT, CryptoPunks, that achieved $17 million. And now what's next is, uh, you know, reconcili- reconciling the past and the present. Uh, this uh, uh, digital art was invented, was created, conceived by Andy Warhol, retrieved a few years ago, and now back to life through the NFT and the possibility to, uh, to secure the uniqueness and the authenticity of this work on the blockchain. How much competition did you face? getting hold of these prints and being able to sell them? Because I do see, if I compare you to what we see going on at at Philips and and Sotheby's, your competitors, you're diving in with both feet in terms of digital transformation, but also, I think, with the NFT space. Well, you know, a few months ago, uh, it was Christie's that really uh, rediscovered or or revealed this existing reality of, of the crypto art market. Uh, when we presented for the first time for a major auction house, this work by Beeple, um, it's great that now the whole art market is embracing uh, this uh, category. Uh, at Christie's, we just want to continue to innovate and do things uh, we believe are right at the right moment. That's exactly what's happening now with uh, uh, 
uh, these works by Andy Warhol with the Andy Warhol Foundation, with which we are partnering. Uh, and, and please stay tuned because we'll continue to innovate in this field. I mean, you proved last week um, with the sheer quantity and the amount, I think, of sales um, that you can have a success in the traditional art market, but you're also managing to break ground in this, um, this NFT space. To your point, is it in the interest of, of artists and of the market to bring these two things together? Are you talking to other living artists and saying to them, look, how about when you sell your physical art, you mint an NFT to go with it, you sell both, and then actually the economics are reset because if you resell that digital portion, even if the artwork itself resells and you don't get value, as the artist, you make money on the NFT. Are you having those conversations with current live artists today? Well, I can say that there is a lot of curiosity and interest for the NFTs and for this new category, this new you know, sector of the art market. We have seen recently great traditional artists like Damien Hirst, you know, minting is on NFT with great success. So that's great. I think, you know, for, for us, it's just exploring a new frontier, uh, opening new possibilities. Uh, and that's what we do. Last week, you're right to say that it was a defining moment for the art market. Uh, you remember that last year, uh, the market was just resilient. The demand was very strong, but supply was more of a challenge. This year, the market is resurging. What we have seen last year is a, a very strong demand with great artworks to be presented and, and sold for record price. Picasso, uh, uh, Monet, Basquiat, and in the same sale, NFT. That's the new reality of the art market today. Do you think you can bring uh, David Hockney on board? And I use him as an example because he's one of only two live artists, of course, that still managed to outsell people with that auction. And he said, I think it's ICS. Um, he meant it's for international crooks and swindlers. That's what he was talking about in terms of the NFT market. Guillaume, I'm throwing the gauntlet down. Can you bring him on board in this space? Well, you know, I have much respect for David Hockney. He's a great artist himself. He is an innovator in the digital space. He has created some of his works uh, on iPads, you know, so he is, he is, he is an innovator. Uh, I've read that he has expressed some doubts about uh, the, the crypto market. Uh, maybe he will be convinced seeing that this movement and the result we have will continue. You know, I think one of the other questions about Andy Warhol specifically is there's so much supply out there. He was a sort of classic mass production artist. I mean, the shop was called the factory that gives our viewers a, an illustration. What's the benefit to him of adding more supply? What's the benefit to his legacy and to the foundation of doing this, if it means more supply? He was incredibly creative, that's true. But look, he's one of the most sought-after artists on the art market. Uh, last week in New York, we saw several artworks by, by Andy Warhol for great prices. Uh, the five NFTs we are going to sell are unique, they are authentic, uh, they are new to the market, they are featuring well-known uh, images by, by, uh, by Warhol, uh, self-portraits, uh, banana, uh, the, the uh, Campbell soup can. So uh, the, we, we, we really expect these works to be offered for a very low reserve price of $10,000 to work very well and to appeal to many collectors traditional collectors and, of course, crypto collectors. Yes, so you've got two completely separate sets of 
audience and potential collectors. And that's a good thing if you're broadening out the market. They are progressively overlapping. They are progressively overlapping. And that's what you're seeing. Absolutely. Well, you know, one of the underbidders in the Beeple sale two months ago, two weeks later, was one of the major uh, buyers in our uh, um, modern art sale buying uh, a work by Picasso. So, you know, the two worlds <laughs> are overlapping. And, and, you know, that's the future, as I told you. You see, this is such an exciting part. You know what? I think we've established as far as you're concerned and based on the sales last week and that fact, I think that the art market is certainly not in a bear market. But, Guillaume, there is a bear in the market. Absolutely. Talk to me about the bear. Absolutely. Well, it's the most famous one. It's a bear by uh, Leonardo da Vinci that we will present uh, in our cell in London. After New York, the market is moving. Next week, we have sales in Hong Kong and uh, later in June and July in London. And we'll present the 8th of July, uh, uh, Head of a Bear by Leonardo da Vinci, one of the eight uh, uh, drawings by the masters uh, owned in private hands. So we, we really believe that will be another major event on the art market in July in London. Yeah, and I believe the estimate here, 12 to 18 million pounds. So you can do the conversion to dollars yourself for, uh, for the audience. And uh, on a more personal note, we yeah, have to talk about... 11 oh, to 18 million pounds. Oh, okay. Thank you. And on a more personal note now, um, we have to talk about the Secura. I want to ask you if I bid on it, um, can I get a discount on the hammer price? We have pictures of this. <laughs> well, I was sure you will ask the question. Uh, it's, it's a very rare, it's a very rare and extraordinary diamond ring, uh, rare by, you know, uh, uh, its transparency. It's a vivid uh, uh, diamond ring. So I'm afraid that it will be much, you know, uh, uh, disputed by many bidders. And, and, and Julia, I like you very much, but I'm afraid <laughs> I will not be able to give you a discount this time. Shame. I'm thinking I have to save for about 5,000 years in order to even approach. Guillaume, thank you, though, for even considering it. Thank you. And uh, great thank to you. chat yeah. to you. Good luck with the Andy Warhol sale. Good. Guillaume Tsuruti there, so the CEO much. of Christie's. Thank you. Okay, and from sharing art online to seeing it in person, museums, cafes, bars and restaurants reopen in France. We're live in Paris to take a look. Welcome back to First Move with a little look at what's going on in terms of the price action across financial markets. It is a volatile day on Wall Street. That's the message. As you can see, losses for the U.S. majors. We are sitting quite close to session lows. The biggest losses being felt actually in the S&P 500. Bitcoin, meanwhile, in the crypto space, pairing some of its losses were down some 17 percent. It had been down more than 20 percent at its worst levels around an hour ago. Reports say crypto exchanges like Coinbase are having trouble processing trades amidst today's extreme volatility. Coinbase shares currently down some 10 percent today, too. Now, in the past couple of hours, the EU has announced it will ease travel restrictions for fully vaccinated visitors from outside the EU. It comes on the day France is reopening non-essential businesses. And Melissa Bell is in Paris with more. Melissa, I have to say, I do love your apartment, but there's nothing better than Paris in the springtime. The EU is relaxing restrictions. Paris is ready. Julia, I cannot tell you how good it is to speak to you from outside my apartment. This is the Latin Quarter, and this is what it looks like today. For the first time since late October, people have been able to sit in terraces, 
have lunches served by restaurants that can serve them outdoors. Cinemas are open, bars, restaurants, uh, museums. In a sense, really, Paris is back, and it's just almost the fact of being outdoors. And of course, in the nick of time, we've seen these two catastrophic closures for Europe for those reasons, the particularly tight restrictions that have been here. And the result has been the recession that Europe now finds itself in. It was high time that this long, long winter came to an end, Julia. I was just trying to school myself. Those people have clearly been cooped up too long and even the dog was joining in there, which I think was just absolutely fantastic. There's a lot of excitement. (laughs) I'm with them. Um, What protections are in place, though, uh, for those perhaps that are looking to come to France, coming to Paris? What are they going to feel in terms of differences? Because obviously we have to be careful of a pickup in virus, particularly with variants out there too. Of course, that is the one big difference with Paris essentially reopening today is that it's missing one of its crucial ingredients, Julia, and that is the tourists. It is the most visited city in the world and it does feel pretty empty. Once again, its monuments, its museums are open, its bars, its restaurants. And now the crucial question is how those certificates are going to work that will allow non-EU residents to come once again to visit Paris. So the idea is that the European Union is looking at a system of reciprocity, that is, countries that are Europeans who can prove they've been vaccinated travel there, will find some way of finding a certificate that allows those who've been vaccinated elsewhere once again to come here. The timescale we're looking at, Julia, is around the 9th of June. So there is hope that Americans and citizens of other countries in the world will once again be able to return to Paris fairly quickly, Julia. Yes, we join you in that hope. Thank you to Melissa Bell there. Thank you to the dog. Thank you to the two excited Frenchmen. You all contributed to the production. Melissa, enjoy the sunshine. Thank you. Okay, finally, as cruise liners go, it didn't have the best luck, but it did capture people's hearts. And guess what? Those hearts will go on. China is pushing ahead with a replica of the Titanic, which will form the centerpiece of a theme park in the Xinjiang province. It's called the unsinkable Titanic. And don't worry, icebergs shouldn't be a problem. The ship will be permanently docked on a reservoir hundreds of miles from the sea. No opening date has been set yet, but you can bet the first visitors will feel like kings and queens of the world. Yes, that's my kind of Titanic, one that's land-based. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next, and I'll see you tomorrow.